This reading comes from the contemporary English version and starts at Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When Jesus got out of the boat, he saw the large crowd that was like sheep without a shepherd. He felt sorry for the people and started teaching them many things. That evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This place is like a desert, and it is already late. Let the crowds leave so they can go to their farms and villages near here and buy something to eat. Jesus replied, You give them something to eat. But they asked him, Don't you know that it would take almost a year's wages to buy all of these people something to eat? Then Jesus said, How much bread do you have? Go and see. They found out and answered, We have five small loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus told his disciples to have the people sit down on the green grass. They sat down in groups of a hundred and groups of fifty. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up towards heaven and blessed the food. Then he broke the bread and handed it to his disciples to give to the people. He also divided the two fish so that everyone could have some. After everyone had eaten all they wanted, Jesus' disciples picked up twelve large baskets of leftover bread and fish. There were five thousand men who ate the food. The reading is taken from Mark chapter 8 verses 14 to 30. The disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Jesus warned them, watch out, guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. The disciple talked this over and said to each other, he must be saying this because we don't have any bread. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you talking about not having any bread? Don't you understand? Are your minds still closed? Are your eyes blind and your ears deaf? Don't you remember how many baskets of leftovers you picked up when I fed those 5,000 people with only five small loaves of bread? Yes, the disciples answered. There were 12 baskets. Jesus then asked, And how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up when I broke seven small loaves of bread for those 4,000 people? Seven, they answered. Don't you know what I am talking about by now? Jesus asked. As Jesus and his disciples were going into Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch the man. Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of the village where he spit into the man's eyes. He placed his hands on the blind man and asked him if he could see anything. The man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and this time the man stared. His eyes were healed and he saw everything clearly. Jesus said to him, You may return home now, but don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went into the villages near the town of Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, What do people say about me? The disciples answered, Some say you are John the Baptist, or maybe Elijah. 
Others say you are one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked them, but who do you say I am? You are the Messiah, Peter replied. Jesus warned the disciples not to tell anyone about him. Now we continue our reading from Mark as we move on from the stories of Jesus' healing. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. Jesus began telling his disciples what would happen to him. He said, The nation's leaders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law of Moses will make the Son of Man suffer terribly. He will be rejected and killed but three days later he will rise to life. Then Jesus explained clearly what he meant. Now Peter took Jesus aside and told him to stop talking like that. But when Jesus turned and saw the disciples, he corrected Peter. He said to him, Satan, get away from me. You are thinking like everyone else and not like God. Jesus then told the crowd and the disciples to come closer And he said, if any of you want to be my followers, you must forget about yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you will destroy it. But if you give up your life for me and for the good news, you will save it. What will you gain if you own the whole world but destroy yourself? What could you give to get back your soul? Don't be ashamed of me and my message among these unfaithful and sinful people. If you are, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you want to be one of my followers, you'd just better forget about living your own life. The path I'm walking leads directly to crucifixion. That's the path I'm calling you to follow with me. If you try and save your life, you'll end up losing it. But if you give up your life for me and for the good news, you'll end up saving it. It's not exactly a palatable message, is it? It's not a good recruitment message to send out, expecting loads of people to follow you, if that's the kind of thing you're telling people. What kind of person goes around saying that stuff? Perhaps, even more pertinently... What kind of person can go around saying that stuff and yet still get people to follow him in such large numbers? Clearly Jesus had to be a remarkable man. He must have had a massive amount of charisma for people to to listen to that message, take it on board and continue following him. Of course, it's debatable at this early stage whether they really understood what he was on about or whether they even believed him at this point in time. After when the moment of truth arrived and Jesus was arrested, they did all run away and abandon him. Yet after the resurrection, they all picked up the threads again. What he'd said to them made sense now. They remembered his words. That's how they ended up being recorded in Mark's Gospel so that we could read them today. Having seen the reality of Jesus undergoing crucifixion, they knew he wasn't just talking metaphorically about self-control when he talked about following him and taking up your cross. He wasn't talking about self-denial. Following Jesus was to set out on a path that could lead them to the ultimate sacrifice. 
So why make the journey at all? Well, did the significance of that sentence I said a few moments ago escape you? Let me repeat it. After the resurrection, they picked up the threads again and remembered what he'd said. If it had all ended with Jesus on the cross at Golgotha, his followers scattered and in hiding, we would never have got to hear the words that Jesus spoke. His disciples would have recognized the truth of what he said. To follow him was to take a walk along death row. But if it had all ended at the cross, none of them would have taken up the challenge to go on following him after that. What would have been the point? He would have been nothing more than yet one more failed Messiah who had promised to lead his people to freedom and had been crushed instead by the iron might of Rome. They would, yes, they would have remembered his words and thought how absolutely right he was and how lucky they had been to escape and not get rounded up and executed with him. They would have remembered his words for as long as they lived, but his words would have died with them. But those words got written down in Mark's Gospel. Because despite having seen Jesus executed, and having heard that the same fate could await them, they still decided they were going to follow this man. His words were remembered and cherished and written down long after he died and long after the death of his followers, some of whom were indeed crucified as he had been. What gave them the resolve to do that? What made the difference? What caused them to reassemble after they'd been scattered in terror after his arrest? It was nothing less powerful or radical than his resurrection from the dead. It was that that gave them the motivation and the courage they needed to say, actually, yes, we will follow this man. Having seen the price he paid and having been aware that our path in following him might lead to the same fate for us, we will follow him. Why would they do that? Only because they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And they knew he was who he said he was. And they knew that following him would be worthwhile. Following him might cost them their life, as he said. Those who lost their lives for him, though, and the good news, would get them back again. Following Jesus might lead to death's door, but they also knew that following Jesus would lead them through death's door and out the other side into eternal life. Following Jesus was going to be immensely costly, but absolutely worth it. Weigh up the options. You can gain the whole world and perish forever. Or you can deny yourself, follow Jesus, and attain eternal life. In the long term, which is the wise decision to make? However much you might have by way of wealth, possessions, influence and status, when it comes to encountering the grim reaper, none of that counts for anything. Having Jesus makes all the difference. As Jesus said, what can you possibly give in exchange for your life? Psalm 49 makes this point well. You can't buy back your life or pay off God, it says. It costs far too much to buy your life back again. You can never pay God enough to stay alive forever and safe from death. So those who trust in their riches and boast about their wealth are ultimately wasting their time. But, having said all that, and this is the psalmist's confession of faith, 
God will rescue me from the power of death. God will redeem my life and ransom my soul from the grave. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus did when he went to the cross and he rose again. And again, this is Jesus doing something that only God does. We thought earlier about God saying, I will feed my people in the wilderness because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And that's what Jesus does. He sees them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them. He feeds them. He does what God says he will do. In the Old Testament, the psalmist says, I believe that God will ransom my soul for life. There's nothing I can do, no amount I could pay to have my life back, but God will redeem me. And Jesus taps into that when he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life to redeem us, to rescue us, to ransom us from death. That's what he's referring to when he said the Son of Man come, not, comes not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He died in our place, dying our death to redeem us from death and bring us into life. And that's what Peter, at that moment in time, didn't understand at all. His realisation that Jesus must be the Messiah, the Christ, the Chosen One, was nothing less than a flash of divine inspiration. And again, it's a measure of just what an impact Jesus made that all sorts of ideas were floating around about who he might have been. Perhaps he was John the Baptist, back from the grave. That might explain the miraculous powers that he had. Or maybe he was Elijah, because there was a prophecy that Elijah would come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord came to get God's people ready for judgment day. Perhaps that's who Jesus was, or... Those people who had both feet more firmly on the ground were saying, well, he's just one of the prophets, isn't he? But it's Peter. Peter who catches a glimpse of who Jesus really is. You are the the Messiah, aren't you? You're the Christ. You're the chosen one. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are God's anointed one. You will do all that stuff that Isaiah mentions in Isaiah chapter 61. And when you look at that prophecy, you can see the match between what Jesus does and what Isaiah said would happen. The cap fits pretty well. Who went around preaching good news to the poor? Jesus. Who healed people of sickness, disease and broken hearts? Jesus. Who set people free in all sorts of ways? Jesus. Who brought comfort to grieving people, replacing their tears of sadness with joy and laughter? Jesus. Who showed kindness to God's people and punished all their enemies? Ah, well, Jesus didn't do that bit, actually. But Peter had every confidence that that was on his agenda as well, because all the other pieces of the jigsaw fitted. And that missing piece had to be that Jesus would deliver God's people from their enemies, smash the Roman Empire, lead them into victory and independence. That was the script that everybody had written for the Messiah when he finally came. But it wasn't the script that Jesus and his father had written between them. And when Peter heard what the script was going to be, he was appalled. Rejected? Mistreated? Beaten up? Crucified? That cannot possibly happen to you, even if it is to be followed by some kind of resurrection. And he told Jesus so to his face. Not so. This will never happen to you. It can't happen to you. That's not what it's about. 
and he got put firmly in his place as a result. Typical Peter, can't keep his mouth shut. One minute he's the golden boy for getting it right, next minute he's in the doghouse for totally misconstruing God's plan. Because God had something far bigger in mind than just political liberation for the nation of Israel. One more cycle in the cycle of violence. One more army going to a war. One more army slaughtered and victory over enemies at the price of of defeat and suffering. Jesus came not to fight another battle. He came to overturn the power of death itself and set us free from its final and conclusive grip on our lives. By dying, he secures his eternal life. That's why people remembered what he said when he talked about giving up their life to follow him and saving it in the end, because after his resurrection, they'd seen it happen. They'd seen him lose his life and get it back. And they believed when he said it would be true for them as well. So who do you think Jesus is? Remarkable teacher? An exceptionally wise man, perhaps? A misguided do-gooder who overstepped the mark? Just another failed Jewish messianic pretender? What you need to ask yourself is what kind of person would say the things that he said and still get people to follow him? Particularly after he was executed on a cross. Particularly after the complete and utter collapse of the movement he founded with all his followers scattered and in hiding. As I said before, if it ended at the cross, people would have been amazed about how absolutely right he was, about how his life would turn out, and would simply have been thankful that they'd avoided his fate as well. But instead, they remembered his words, were prepared to take up their cross and follow him to death if necessary, because they knew who he was. More than a prophet, more than a remarkable man, more even than the reincarnation of a famous figure from the past. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was God's chosen one, the anointed one, come with good news to set people free and bring them healing and joy and forgiveness and new life, eternal life, actually. That meant he was worth following, worth believing in, worth giving their lives to, worth even giving their lives for. Those who took that step never regretted doing so because in the end they found the transforming power of God's kingdom released into their lives. Make no mistake, the safe thing to do is to keep Jesus at a distance. Leave him buried in the unopened pages of the Bible on some forgotten bookshelf. Leave him in the stained glass window of an empty church. Leave him as an object of curiosity, someone to be aware of but not considered too deeply. Because recognise this, if you let Jesus get too close, he becomes far too challenging. If you want to be my followers, you must forget about yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you'll destroy it. If you give up your life for me and for the good news, you'll save it. What will you gain if you own the whole world but destroy yourself? What could you give to get back your soul? Do you know the really scary thing? 
It's not that Jesus said those words all those years ago and that people believed them and remembered them because they knew he was speaking the truth. The scary thing is that the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the chosen one, the Son of God, says those words to you today. He challenges you as God's Son to give up your life as it is now, to gain your life forever by following him along a path of self-denial and sacrificial service. Make no mistake, the more you get to know who Jesus really is, the more impossible it becomes to deny him or turn back from the path he calls us to follow. Recognise who he is. Recognise what he came to do. Hear the challenge of his words. And be prepared to take up your cross and follow him. Because if you give up your life by doing so, you'll gain it for eternity. That's what he came to do.